We've got some fresh new young talent doing some things that I know you haven't heard before. One, two, three, listen. You gotta have a like the why, and we know our why. So I think you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Millions and millions of people have done this already. You can get help, you can get a roadmap, you can save a lot of time, money, and frustration. Welcome to the Value Add Podcast with K and K. Hey everyone. <laughs> We're live. Great. We made it work. Hey, everybody. Thanks for uh, coming on today. So today, as you can see on the screen, we're talking about a super excited topic, 1031 Exchange. Um, obviously, you guys know that there's a lot of talk around this subject. There's a lot of things going on in this crazy world that we're living in. And one of them is 1031 Exchanges. There's the taxes and all this stuff. So today, we wanted to bring on... Um, a couple of great guests. Crystal's going to introduce them. But really what we're going to talk about is number one is I want to get a lot of questions answered about 1031 that I've always been wanting to ask experts. And number two, I want to learn a little bit more and we're all going to learn today about what's going on with 1031. Is it here to stay? Is it going to go away? And, you know, Suzanne, who's on, who's on the podcast here today, the webinar, she's going to go into her role in playing, you know, keeping this alive and basically how this works with, you know, dealing with the government, stuff like that. So without further ado, Chris will jump in and then we'll get started. Awesome. So uh, like Kenny mentioned, we are so uh, thankful to have Suzanne Goldstein Baker and Stephen Decker here with us today. Suzanne is general counsel for IPX 1031 and Stephen Decker is the Western region sales manager. Um, so they're going to kind of go through everything with us. Just before we get started though, I want to kind of um, preface sort of the itinerary. So um, they're going to go through the whole presentation, all of the slides. And if you guys have questions down below, there is a Q&A box. So you can put all your questions in there. And at the end, we'll open it up for questions and we'll read um, every question in order that they were received and uh, get to answering those. So um, do try to hold those questions till the end, but you can go ahead and type them in. In the meantime, we'll get to them uh, a little bit later. So um, also we do have a few poll questions uh, that we're going to put up on the screen. It's super helpful for us. And it's always kind of fun to see uh, what the results are. So if you guys could take a look at those when they pop up and share your answers. Uh, Suzanne, I think you actually have to do it on your side since you're, um, you have control of the screen, the polls. Um, okay. You'll, you'll just have to tell me what yeah, to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so okay. it's down at the bottom. It should say polls in the middle at the bottom of the screen. You seeing it? I'm sorry. I'm seeing no notes. I'm seeing uh, some boxes and a search thing. I'm not seeing polls. Um, it should be by where it says share screen. Monty? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. We can have Monty work on that while we're, we're going. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I, I kind of sprung that on you at the last minute. We didn't get to talk about that. <laughs> Well, why don't you guys jump in? Yeah, let's in. just jump into give, it, and then we'll get that sorted out. Yeah, give out. us some background on you guys, and we'll jump into it. Okay, so um, we're going to flip-flop a little bit back and forth. I'm Suzanne Goldstein-Baker, um, General Counsel for IPX 1031, Investment Property Exchange Services. I've been in the business um, for, I hate to tell you, almost 30 years. <laughs> um, 
And it's a fun business because it's different every day. Uh, in addition to my role with uh, investment property exchange services, I'm also the co-chair of the Government Affairs Committee for our industry association for qualified intermediary companies, the Federation of Exchange Accommodators, or FEA. Um, and so I spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C., but not so much this year. <laughs> um, and, uh, and Steve here is, I'm, I'm uh, based in Chicago. Our company is nationwide. Steve uh, Decker, my colleague, uh, our senior VP for, and Western Region Sales Manager, is in your backyard and based in Southern California. So um, Steve is gonna tell you a little bit about himself. He's gonna lay a base, a foundation of what is 1031, uh, so that we all know what we're talking about. Then he'll flip it back to me. I'll talk about some of the threats, why they're there, where they're coming from, uh, what we're doing about it, um, what everybody can do about it. And then we'll kind of wrap it up and take all of your questions. So Steve, take it away. All right, you got it. So um, thank you, Suzanne. Thank you, Kenny and Crystal. I appreciate the opportunity here to speak with everybody today. I'm Steve Decker. I'm, uh, as everybody's pointed out already, SVP with IPX here based in Southern California. Uh, I'm a glutton for punishment. I'm not quite as seasoned as Suzanne is, uh, but I've been doing exchanges for 17 years now. Um, I've been with IPX for the last 11 years, slowly kind of working my way up the food chain, working with everybody from mom and pop investor that are selling you know, one rental condo out in the middle of nowhere, all the way up to large commercial real estate investors and REITs uh, that are selling institutional grade uh, investment real estate. So uh, we work a lot with the, the real estate community. Suzanne didn't pat herself on the back nearly enough. Her and the president of IPX, John Wunderlich, um, have really done a phenomenal job of spreading the word, uh, working with senators on the Senate Finance Committee and members of the House Ways and Means Committee in particular to really help save 1031 exchanges um, from a number of different threats that Suzanne will go into a little bit later. Uh, but I'm here today to walk and talk you through a little bit of the 1031 exchange process. Let's explain what exactly a 1031 exchange is before we go into how we can save them and why we frankly should save them. Um, so generally the first thing that I talk about when I talk to people about 1031 exchanges is the term investment because you guys would probably be shocked at how many people call me up and they say, Hey Steve, I'm selling my primary residence and I want to do a 1031 exchange or, you know, I own a second home. I'm a snowbird. I live half of the year in Denver. Uh, and then when the snow comes in, I go to my, my second home in Southern California. And a lot of times those clients will say, hey, can I sell my primary or can I sell my second home and do a 1031 exchange with it? Unfortunately, the answer is no. Um, 1031 exchanges are really only for your clients that are selling either investment real estate or properties that have been held for the productive use of their business or trade. Um, so, you know, a lot of times when our clients are thinking about doing an exchange, they get really caught up on one of the requirements that the IRS has, and it's the like-kind requirement. You guys have probably heard the term like-kind real estate. A lot of times our clients, they get super myopic. They get really, really laser focused. They think, if I sold the triplex in San Diego County, I've got to scour the MLS and find one of the five triplexes that's currently on the market <laughs> and successfully take it down. Uh, but that is absolutely not true. A lot of times our clients think, you know, we've got to stay, stay in the same product type, uh, or the same asset class, like-kind really has nothing to do with what type of real estate it is. As long as it has been held for investment or in your use of business or trade, 
it should qualify for an exchange. So everything that you guys see on the left side of your screen, this is sort of our <laughs> traditional real estate. Um, you know, generally the things that our clients are exchanging in and out of, things like single family rentals, the plexes, duplex, triplex, fourplex. Quick little side note on the plexes. This question comes up a lot. Um, if I occupy one of the units of, let's say a triplex, but I rent out the other two units, can I do a 1031 exchange with that property? It's actually a pretty good situation to be a part of because you can take both your primary residence exemption and do a 1031 exchange with the portion of the property that was held for investment purposes. Um, so we, we get that unfortunate phone call sometimes from clients that say, hey Steve, my real estate agent told me that triplex I sold last year, I couldn't exchange it because I occupied one of the units. It's actually not 100% accurate. So. Um, so the plexes are absolutely exchangeable. Anything commercial will qualify for an exchange. So, you know, the, the whole gamut, office, industrial, retail, hospitality, multifamily, et cetera. And vacant land. Vacant land is one that, I, that I'd like to point out in particular because a lot of times our clients think that the property has to be income producing in order for it to qualify for an exchange. A lot of times I'll get calls from clients that say, hey, Steve, you know, I bought a piece of dirt in the middle of nowhere 30 years ago thinking that it was going to be in the path of growth. And then eventually, you know, a developer was going to come along, buy my property, develop it, and I was going to become a millionaire overnight. But in the meantime, the town took a left instead of a right, and my property's out here to the right. And I've been paying property taxes on that thing. I'm not getting a depreciation deduction. That's a great client to say, hey, why don't we sell your piece of investment real estate, your vacant land, and get you into some income-producing property. So vacant land does qualify for exchanges as well. Now what you see on the right of your screen, these are the things that are a bit outside of the box. Sometimes our clients will, will reach out to us and they say, you know, I own single family rentals, but I'm sick of the three T's. I'm sick of the toilets, the trash, and the tenants. And a lot of times, as we all know, the tenants are also the trash, right? They seem to be synonymous with one another sometimes. Um, so a lot of times our clients will say, Steve, you know, I'm sick of getting those phone calls at two in the morning of somebody's water heater that's exploded, somebody's toilets overflowed, you know, the guy in unit B has a party going on and it's three in the morning. Um, can I sell my, you know, I want to sell my residential investment properties, but, you know, I don't really have any interest in commercial, don't know the first thing about it, and I don't really want to write a big paycheck for Uncle Sam. So is there anything else that I could possibly exchange in or out of that would qualify for an exchange? And the answer is yes. So everything that you see on the right side of your screen, these are things that are a bit outside of the box. Now, I already saw in the Q&A box, there was a question about DSTs. What a DST is, DST stands for Delaware Statutory Trust. Um, a DST is where you go out and you buy fractional ownership, typically of large commercial property with a number of other investors. So for example, I don't have $30 million laying around to go buy myself a, a grocery anchored shopping center in Denver, but I might have enough money to buy 3% of that grocery anchored shopping center in Denver. Um, so you can actually buy fractional ownership interests of large commercial property with other investors. Now these Delaware statutory trusts, they are considered a securitized asset. Um, so unfortunately you wouldn't be able to be placed into a DST through, um, through a real estate agent. You would actually have to go through a wealth advisor. But for those clients that maybe they've got a little bit of money left over at the end of their exchange and they don't wanna pay tax on it, that's a great client to say, hey, why don't we toss that money into a DST? Uh, maybe it's a client that is, is elderly. They don't want to deal with any of the tenant headaches. Uh, they don't want to deal with the phone calls. They don't want to pay a property management fee. 
a DST might be a good option for one of them as well. Um, so the downside to the Delaware Statutory Trust says the, the, there was a question that was posed about, you know, the, what are the downsides? Really, the, the biggest downside that we hear from clients is the fact that you pretty much lose all control of the ability to sell the, the real estate assets. So if you exchange into one of these properties, it is up to the DST sponsor to make the determination as to when to sell that piece of real estate. So it's not up to, you know, me that, you know, I own 3%, Suzanne owns 4%, you know, Kenny and Crystal own 5%. We unfortunately don't get to make the call on when we sell that asset. The typical hold period for one of those types of properties on average right now is generally three to five years. Um, I've seen one turn as quickly as 18 months, uh, but the longest you'll ever be in a DST is typically 10 years. And that's due to the type of financing that they have in place on those property types. Um, so DSTs are, are pretty big right now. We're having a lot of clients going into those, but if that's not your, your game, cell towers, you know, those God awful things that are on the side of the freeway, they, they try to dress <laughs> them up and make them look like a palm tree, but they never really look like a palm tree. <laughs> Suzanne, I don't know what they dress them up to look like in Chicago. Are the pine trees out there or what do they make them look like out here? They try to make them look like we're kind of big for snowmen. <laughs> <laughs> snowmen are good. Giant snowmen out there. <laughs> um, but, you know, billboards also, you know, particularly in Las Vegas, we've got clients that exchange in and out of billboards. Windmills, for those of you that are in Southern California, if you've ever driven out to Palm Springs and you see that huge windmill farm that's out there in the middle of nowhere, every single one of those windmills has its own APN number. If you've got a client that's really into wind energy, they could, they could go into to billboards. Um, and then things like air rights, water rights, oil, gas, and mineral leases, uh, boat docks and moorings. I didn't even know what the hell a mooring was until I had a client that called me up a few years ago and he said, Steve, I'm selling my mooring off of Catalina Island and I want to do an exchange with it. I said, well, what the heck is that? He said, you know that little stick or the buoy that's in the water that you attach your boat to to make sure it doesn't go floating out to sea? I said, yeah, is that worth something? He said, I'm selling it for $300,000 and I want to roll it into an investment condo. <laughs> you want to sell your stick in the water for 300,000 bucks and go buy a condo with it. You are welcome to do so through a 1031. Wow. And last but not least, my personal favorite, if you are a real morbid SOB, I've actually had two clients in my career actually buy cemetery plots uh, through their 1031 exchange as well. So now the reason I'm telling you guys all these different things is not because I realistically think you're going to be chomping at the bit to go buy cemetery plots. It's more so just to illustrate the diversity of 1031 exchanges. It's not just I'm selling single family, I'm buying single family, or I'm selling office and buying office. You can go from residential to commercial. You can do vice versa, go from commercial to residential, um, or you can get into some of the things that are a bit outside of the box. Um, now, the next topic that, that I'm going to cover are the taxes, because Generally, when I sit down with a client, I ask them, I say, you know, what's your real reason why you're doing an exchange? And probably 99% of the time people tell me they're doing an exchange because they don't want to pay taxes. And I always kind of challenge them on that and say, well, that's not really true. If you don't want to pay taxes, you just don't sell your real estate. And then, you know, so I kind of dig in a little bit deeper to really find out why they're selling. And, and I'll get into the non-tax benefits here in a minute. But since 1031 and taxes are kind of synonymous with one another, it's good to get a little bit of an understanding of what kind of taxes you could expect to pay if you just decided, hey, you know what, I really want to bite the bullet and do my civic duty and pay my capital gains tax. So if you just decided to sell your investment property and cash out, 
Um, the federal government will come in and they'll take long-term capital gains tax. You typically begin to accrue long-term gain on a property once you've held that asset for more than one year. So right now, the federal long-term capital gains tax rate is either 15 or 20% of the gain, and it depends on what your taxable income is. So if your taxable income is above 441,000 if single, 496 if you're married and filing jointly, you get pushed into that higher tax bracket of 20%. Now as a little side note to this, something to be aware of, a lot of times our clients don't realize that just by selling your piece of real estate, you might be putting yourself into a higher tax bracket. You know, a lot of times I'll get calls from clients that are retired and they say, hey, Steve, you know, I make $60,000 a year from Social Security and my rental home, um, you know, the, the income that's thrown off from the rental property that I own, you know, I'm going to be paying this lower rate, right? Well, and then you come to find out that they've owned the property for 35 years and it's got you know, $700,000 of gain built up in it. And, and just by selling that real estate, they might be putting themselves into a higher tax bracket. So just be aware that just by selling that real, that, that real estate, you might be going into that tax bracket that causes you to give one-fifth of your overall gain back to the government in the form of long-term capital gains tax. Well, if that's not bad enough, then uh, there are 41 states that have some level of ordinary income tax. Now, I have the fortune or the misfortune of living in the state with the highest ordinary income tax of any state in the country. See, in California, we like to be number one, right? Uh, so right now we have the, the highest ordinary income tax of any state in the country. Uh, so if you get, if, if you just decide to sell your property, uh, Uncle Newsom comes along and he gets to collect another 9.3 to 13.3% of the gain that you made, and that's taxed as ordinary income. One little side note to be aware of, a lot of our clients are starting to exchange out of California and into other states. California has been become particularly unfriendly towards landlords. We, we do have the highest state income tax of any state in the country. So a lot of my clients are thinking, all right, if I sell my investment property in California and I go buy something in Texas, for example, which is an income tax-free state, then I'm in the clear because now Texas doesn't have a state income tax. So if I decide to sell the property that I bought in Dallas, you know, 20 years from now, I can just walk away and not pay any state income tax. Well, California actively tracks you when you leave the state with their money. So if you sell a property in California and you exchange into another state, California tracks you. So if 20 years from now I sell my property in Dallas and I, and I just walk away, California comes back and says, hey, remember that gain that you made from the sale of your property in San Diego that you sold way back in 2020? Well, you know, oh, you're back California ordinary income tax on that sale. Um, so just something to be aware of. Now, on top of that, there is what I refer to as a healthcare surtax. What the hell does healthcare have to do with real estate? I don't have any idea. But in 2012, when we reformed healthcare, we had to find a way to pay for healthcare reform. So let's tax investments. Investment real estate is included in that. So if you just decide to sell your property and cash out, you could be giving another 3.8% of your gain to the government in the form of a healthcare tax if your adjusted gross income is above $200,000 a year single, two fifty dollars if married and filing jointly. Um, and the last one is what I refer to as the hidden tax, the depreciation recapture. This is the one that people always forget about. Whenever you own investment real estate, unless you own vacant land because you cannot depreciate vacant land, but if you own a single family home or an apartment building or an office building or whatever the case may be, if you decide to sell and cash out, the government says, hey, you know all that depreciation that you took on that investment property that you owned for the last 15 years? 
Well, I now want 25% of that back. So they give you a deduction and then they take a quarter of it back if you sell and don't complete the 1031 exchange. So long story short, when you blend all of these rates together, the Fed, the state, the healthcare, and the depreciation recapture, if you're selling in a state like Nevada, Texas, Washington, Florida, you know, tax-free states, on the low end, you, you'd be giving probably 20% of your gain back to the government. But if you're selling in a, in a California, a Hawaii, a New York, New Jersey, Minnesota, states with really high state income taxes, you could be giving close to 40% of your overall gain back to the government in some form of tax or another. Now, in order to defer paying all of these taxes, um, there are certain requirements that the IRS has. Suzanne, can you kick over to the next slide? Thank you. Um, so in order to defer all of these taxes, the IRS really has two things that you have to do. Uh, you have to reinvest all of the equity that comes from the property that you sell. So all of the cash that's in the property that you're selling, and you have to replace the value of the debt that you had. Now I key in on the word value because there is a big misconception out there that if I had a $400,000 loan on the property that I'm selling, when I go buy my replacement property, I also have to have at least a $400,000 loan on that next property. That's actually not 100% accurate. You do have to replace that debt amount, the 400,000 in this example, but the IRS does not care how you replace it. So realistically, you could replace that $400,000 of debt with either $400,000 of traditional financing. So you could go back to your, your lender and obtain $400,000 of traditional financing, but you could also do seller financing. Maybe your credit's not so hot. Uh, maybe you need to move quicker than, than, a, than a lender would be able to act on a property and the seller of the property that you want to buy is willing to carry back a note. That would be perfectly fine. Uh, private money. You know, Suzanne wants to loan you $400,000 out of the goodness of her heart at 15% interest. Uh, <laughs> she could absolutely do that and that would be perfectly fine. Or cash. Cash is a big one that we see a lot of. A lot of times our clients, they like to replace their debt with cash. So, you know, for those clients that are a little bit leery about the market um, and they're not interested in financing their replacement property, they could replace their debt amount with cash if they have the ability to do so. But generally the rule of thumb is in order to defer all of your taxes, you need to buy an equal or greater value. Now, remember how I said that my clients typically tell me they're selling because they don't wanna pay taxes? Well, I would argue that the non-tax benefits associated with exchanges are really the major reasons why people utilize 1031 exchanges. Um, typically when I sit down with clients, I find out that there are two major reasons why they exchange. Either the property they're selling isn't cash flowing as well as they'd like, or it's not appreciating at the level that they would like. Uh, those are the number one and number two reasons why I find that people exchange. The really selfish investors, which is every single one of them, myself included, we want both of those things. We want more cash flow and we want greater appreciation in property value. So typically clients will exchange to increase their cash flow, maybe exchange into an area, you know, the next hot market. We've had a lot of clients exchanging into Tennessee, for example. We're seeing people kind of flooding into Nashville, Memphis, Knoxville. Uh, a lot of clients are moving their assets into Idaho and Utah, uh, Birmingham, Alabama, North Carolina. Um, these are some of the states that I'm seeing kind of trending uh, for our exchange clients. So if you think you're going to get greater appreciation and property value in some of those areas, you could absolutely exchange out of this property and into that next you know, up and coming market, so to speak. 
but sometimes our clients will use exchanges for diversification. A lot of times our clients, they think, okay, if I sell a property, I can only go out and buy one replacement property. Not true. If you want to sell one investment property and get all of your eggs out of one basket and diversify, you are welcome to do so. Uh, right now I'm working with a client that's selling a piece of property for $5 million. And he said, Steve, I want to go buy $5 million worth of single family homes and condos in Las Vegas. So if you want to significantly diversify your real estate portfolio through an exchange, you can do that. You're not limited to just selling one and buying one. But you could also do the opposite. Um, a lot of times I'll see the clients consolidate. Um, you know, I'm working with a different client right now that's selling three single family homes and she wants to go out and buy a commercial property. So she's selling three single families because she's sick of getting those phone calls and she manages all of them herself. Um, so she's selling the three, combining the funds and buying one asset that's of equal or greater value than the combined value of the three that she's selling. So you can also consolidate through an exchange. Um, sometimes people exchange to be closer to home. I mean, I live in San Diego. San Diego is a fairly transient town uh, because we have a lot of military guys and gals here, right? You know, you, 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 you came down, you were stationed in Coronado or maybe you were stationed at Camp Pendleton. You bought a little condo in Oceanside or down in Coronado. This is actually, my father did this. My dad is from New York, got out to the West Coast, uh, through the Navy during Vietnam. He was stash, stationed down in Coronado, bought himself a little condo right on Orange Avenue, a couple blocks down from the Hotel Dell. Um, and it drives me nuts. He lives in Los Angeles now. It's not even out of state, but he drives me nuts because he calls me up and says, hey, Steve, I know, you know, you live in Carlsbad, which for those of you that don't, don't know the distance, that's about 40, 50 miles tops. But with traffic, it can be two hours, two and a half hours, depending on what time you time it. He says, Steve, can you drive down over the bridge and check out the property, make sure, you know, the tenants aren't trashing it. Uh, and I say, dad, you've got a property manager. Yeah, but I don't like her very much. I say, look, <laughs> El Coronado and exchange it for something in LA, a little bit closer to home that you can micromanage in your infinite free time because I don't have time to drive over that damn bridge two or three times a week at your request. So, um, so sometimes people exchange will, to, they'll, they'll do exchanges to be a little bit closer to home to move their assets closer to where they live. Um, maybe it's for a new amortization schedule. Uh, maybe it's for depreciation purposes. You know, if you own an investment property that's now fully depreciated um, and you're not getting that depreciation deduction any longer on your taxes, if you exchange up in value, you will be able to take advantage of a new depreciation schedule on the difference. So if I sell for a million dollars and that asset is fully depreciated and I go exchange into something that's worth a million five, I get to depreciate the, the difference there. Um, and then estate planning. Estate planning is a big reason why people also utilize exchanges. Great way to set up the heirs for the future. Um, I'm working with a client right now whose children don't have any interest in real estate. He owns a bunch of single family homes in Huntington Beach. Uh, he owns about 18 properties. And he said, you know, in his late 80s, when he passes away, he said, I'm going to leave a mess for my three kids because none of them want real estate but I don't want to pay taxes. You know, I've owned these properties since the seventies. If I sold and cashed out, we would pay millions of dollars of taxes. So what he's starting to do is sell off those assets and buy triple net retail properties, triple net retail, because when they inherit their Starbucks or their, their piece of real estate that Starbucks leases from them or Jack in the box leases from them, they don't really have to have any of the day-to-day -day management of real estate. So um, people use exchanges for a whole myriad of different reasons. It's not just the tax benefits. Now, in order to have a successful 1031 exchange, you have to stick to some pretty strict timelines. Contrary to our 
client's popular belief, these time periods are not flexible. So from the time that you close the property that you are selling, the IRS gives you 45 calendar days to identify property that you want to buy in the exchange. And this is if you're doing what's called a delayed exchange. So in a delayed exchange is where you sell first and you buy second. You are delaying your purchase until after you have sold. So if I own this building and I close escrow and I, and I sell it and close on December 1st, from December 1st, I have 45 calendar days to identify property that I wanna buy. And I have 180 calendar days to actually close on one or more of the identified properties. Unfortunately, if your 45th or 180th day falls on a weekend or a holiday, or it's your birthday or Christmas or Hanukkah or New Year's, unfortunately, the IRS does not care. So Suzanne and I cannot care either. Um, it does not push to the next business day. The number one thing that my clients like to yell at me about is the 45 days. For some reason, people think that Steve Decker is the jerk that is only giving them 45 days to identify their replacement property. I always tell them these time periods have been the same since 1984. I was three years old when the IRS put this into place. I had absolutely nothing to do with it. Um, but so, you know, the, these time periods do come quick. To be frank with you, people always ask me, well, why is that 45 days yeah. in place? Well, there's two reasons. Number one, the IRS would probably rather you fail because if you fail, then you get to pay your, your capital gains tax. But if you're not going to fail, the IRS wants you to immediately reinvest into that next investment property because the sooner you reinvest, the sooner you pay transfer taxes, property tax, and start generating income, which means you start generating income tax as well. So those time periods are pretty short and sweet. Um, right now, at least in the Southern California marketplace, we're averaging about 40 days per transaction. So most of our clients are actually closing their replacement property before they even get to the end of that 45 day deadline. Um, you know, it's a, it's a very fast market. Inventory is very low right now. Our clients are, are actively moving around a lot of money. Um, so they're, they're reinvesting extremely fast. There's a lot of anxiety that comes along with that 45 day mark too. So I think once you have your property in escrow to sell, you're already looking for your, your up leg. So. Oh yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm a therapist half the time. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, um, but, but you're right. So some of the things that we've been discussing with our clients, you know, you can make your property that you're selling contingent. You, you could say, Hey, look, I'm selling this contingent upon finding something to purchase in the exchange. Um, I've been telling some of my clients, Hey, look, when you, when you go under contract to, to sell your property, um, have an option to extend the close of escrow, you know, Absolutely. instead of taking out a traditional 30 day escrow, maybe take out a 30 day escrow with two 30 day options to extend, um, so that you can go out and shop during, um, you know, during while you're in the escrow period as well. And, you know, if you're, if you're getting close to that first 30 day close period and you haven't found anything, boom, you execute your second 30 day option and you buy yourself a little bit more time. So, um, so those are some of the strategies that our clients are using to, to push out uh, those deadlines. So, and on the big, and on those big, like those big deals that get done and some people don't realize like, you know, that they'll take four to six months before they close just to identify because they're not, they want to, they want a big runway, you know? So I mean, just give it to yourself. You're better off paying for somebody's lock extension than hitting, you know, with the tax, like it's a business decision. That's absolutely true. And, and, you know, in the other conversation that I sometimes have, you know, it may be better to pay for someone's lock. The other thing that I often tell my clients, 
and I don't mean this to sound snarky, but sometimes I have to tell my clients, look, don't be cheap. Um, you know, is it better to overpay for a property by, you know, 10,000, 20,000 bucks or have a failed exchange and have to pay $300,000 of federal capital gains tax? I mean, I had a client, this was one of my, my very best clients a few years back. Um, you know, he sold a property for $3 million. His name's Albert. Um, you know, Albert sold the property for $3 million and he identified three $1 million properties and he, he closed on two of them pretty much immediately. But that last one, he got into a bidding war with somebody and the bidding got boosted up to about 1.1 million. And he calls me up and says, Steve, you know, I'm not going to overpay for this property. I'm not going to pay 1.1 to take down this property. And I said, well, you know, that's perfectly fine. But Albert, do me a favor, call your CPA and figure, how much, figure out how much tax you're going to pay on that million dollars that you're going to have a, a taxable boot. He calls me back, you know, a couple hours later and says, okay, I'm going to pay $400,000 in taxes if I don't overpay by hundred grand to take down this property. So I'm just going to overpay because I'm sure that eventually I'll recoup my, my hundred grand and I'm going to improve all the comps in the neighborhood for all the other people. So my neighbors will love me uh, in the, in the building that I'm buying. In. So, um, you know, they're, yeah, so, so keep that in mind out there for all of you that are, that are thinking about buying you know, their, your investment properties through an exchange. Start you know, making aggressive offers is probably a pretty good thing to do. Now, when I say identify replacement properties, there are three different rules that you have to select from in order to, to, to identify your replacement property. Um, Suzanne, can you kick me over to the next slide here? Um, there are three different rules that you have to select from in order to, to report your identification. Now, typically you'll identify your replacement property to us, the qualified intermediary. In fact, I should probably explain what Suzanne and I actually do for a living. Sometimes people leave these calls and they think that we just love to educate on 1031 exchanges and that doesn't really make any money. Um, so anytime that you do a 1031 exchange, you have to have what's called a qualified intermediary. Some people call us an accommodator or a QI or an exchange company. Those are all synonyms for the same thing. We are a neutral third party that has to prepare 1031 exchange documents before you close on the property that you're selling and for each property that you purchase in the exchange. Um, and we also have to hold your money in between the time you sell property A and you go out and buy property B. So typically when your clients are doing exchanges, they will identify their property to us. That's, that's what we prefer. Uh, so we provide our clients with a nice little form and we say, here you go, fill out this, this identification letter, sign it, date it, and return it to us before the end of the 45 days is up. Now, during that 45 day window, they can change their mind as much as they want. They can mix and match, you know, if they identify three properties on day 10 and then by day 25, all three of those properties have been, you know, they've been outbid on all of them or, you know, one didn't appraise and one didn't inspect they can change their mind as much as they want within that 45 days. But once you get to day 46, you are locked into acquiring from the list that you provided to us. So typically our clients will utilize what is called the three property rule to identify their replacement property. Um, under this three property rule, the IRS allows you to identify your top three choices, your plan A, your plan B, and your plan C. For the client that is just gonna buy one property, maybe two properties, they will typically use this identification rule. Um, the downside to this rule is you're limited to three properties, but the upside is there's no cap on the value of those three properties. So what do I mean by that? If I sell a property for a million dollars, I could identify one property that's a million, one property that's 10 million, and one property that is $700 million. 
And as long as I have the ability to buy at least one of those three properties, I will have a successful exchange. Now, for the client that wants to diversify, they want to significantly diversify their real estate portfolio. They will probably use what is called the 200% rule. Remember the client that I mentioned that's selling for 5 million and he wants to go out and buy a bunch of single family homes in Las Vegas? He's going to use the 200% rule. Under this 200% rule, you can identify more than three properties, so four or more properties. So there's no cap on the number of properties that you identify, but there is a cap on the value. So what you do is you take the sales price of the property that you sold and you multiply it times two. So if I sold the property for $5 million, I can identify up to $10 million worth of real estate. However, that is comprised. It could be 10 $1 million properties if I wanted to. Um, or I could have a million dollar, a 500,000, I could, I could mix and match those properties. As long as the cumulative value of all of the properties I identify does not add up to more than twice the value of the property that I sold. Now there's one other identification rule. Uh, some people refer to it as the 95% exception. Uh, it's a bit outside of the box, very seldomly used. Um, typically the, the clients that I find that use this rule are buying portfolios of properties. The 95% rule allows you to identify more than three properties. So you would no longer qualify for the three property rule and you can exceed that 200% um, value that, that you have to stick to under the 200% rule. But the IRS requires that you must acquire at least 95% of the value of all of the properties that you identify. So effectively, if you identified hundred properties, you would successfully have to take down at least 95 of them in order to have a valid exchange. Um, so very seldomly used, typically only used, I mean, from what I've seen, Suzanne, you, you may have a, a different perspective on this, but the, the clients that I have seen that have used this successfully have been buying portfolios. You know, I'm buying a portfolio of you know, 75 single family homes in Detroit. You know, so I'm more over the three property rule and the total value of those 75 homes exceeds the 200% rule. Uh, but it's kind of an all or nothing. Either I'm buying all 75 or I'm not buying any of them at all. So um, that's typically where I find that the 95% rule comes into place. And then one of the major questions that comes up, probably one of the questions that I get at least two or three times a day is, can I have an extension to these time periods? <laughs> Unfortunately, the IRS almost never grants an extension to either the 45 or the 180 day time periods. Um, the only cases where I have seen that the IRS has issued an extension is in the case of either military deployment. So you would have to enlist in the military and get deployed overseas in order to get, a, to get an extension. I re recently had a, a 77 year old woman come into my office and threaten to join the Navy so that she could get herself a, a <laughs> told her, hey, look, it's not enough to just enlist. You have to get deployed also. Um, but so you either have to be in the military and deploy, or uh, there has to be a federally declared disaster relief notice issued uh, by the IRS that has been approved by the Treasury Secretary. Um, so typically, federally declared disaster means earthquake, fire, flood, tornado, hurricane, act of terrorism. For the first time in my career, however, uh, back in April, the IRS actually issued a disaster relief extension due to COVID, due to the coronavirus, COVID-19. Um, however, that extension did in fact uh, lapse on uh, July 15th of this year. So unfortunately, that extension is no longer in place. Um, if you asked me if I thought that the IRS was going to extend that further, 
the answer would probably be no. But recently there were a number of disaster relief extensions issued in California due to wildfires. Uh, LA County, San Diego County, and about five or six counties in Northern California uh, were issued disaster relief extensions. So if, if you have a client um, that you think was considered a, an affected person by one of those disaster relief notices, I would refer them to their CPA or their tax advisor and have them see if, if they will uh, you know, qualify for one of those extensions. Uh, all right, Suzanne, um, speaking of COVID-19, coronavirus, there have been a couple of topics that have come into play quite a bit of, of late. Um, I've had a lot of clients inquiring about reverse 1031 exchanges. Uh, reverse exchanges are coming up a lot because inventory is super low right now people are really starting to sweat out that 45 day identification period and they want to know what they can do to kind of mitigate that. Is there a workaround? The workaround for the 45 days is go out and buy your replacement property first. So it is in fact possible to buy first and sell second. However, reverse exchanges are far more complex and therefore quite a bit more expensive uh, because in a reverse exchange, the IRS will not allow you to be on title to the property that you're buying while you are still entitled to the property that you're selling in the exchange. So you can't have what's called simultaneous title. So what happens in a reverse exchange is you actually have to have us, the intermediary, we have to go on title to one of the two properties involved in the transaction, either the property that your client is going to be buying or the property that your client is going to be selling. And it kind of depends on the set of circumstances. We have to become what is called the EAT, the E-A-T, the Exchange Accommodation Title Holder. So typically we'll create a single member LLC that parks one of those two properties. Most of our reverse exchanges occur where we take possession of the property that your client is going to be buying in their exchange. So we create an LLC, we go on title to the property that they're going to be buying, and then that client has 180 days to get the property that they are selling, sold, and off their books. Once that occurs, we then transfer 100% of the membership interests of the LLC and its one underlying asset, the piece of real estate, over to the client so they're never on title to both properties at the same time. Uh, the other major topic that's come up as a result of COVID is seller financing. You know, financing has been a little bit tougher to get come by. Things are definitely loosening up uh, more these days than they were. You know, April, May, I was getting a ton of phone calls about seller financing. If you're uh, buying a property as a part of a 1031 exchange and the seller is willing to carry back a note for you, that is perfectly fine. No issues there. Uh, that, that's, that's not a problem at all. But if you're a seller that is selling a property as a part of an exchange and the buyer is asking you to carry back a note, that can become problematic. Literally right before this meeting, I jumped on a phone call with a commercial broker and he said, Steve, I've got a client that's selling a property. It's all cash. He, he owns it free and clear. It's worth 9 million bucks. The buyer wants us to carry back a note in the amount of $7 million for three years. He said, that's fine, right, for the 1031? Unfortunately, that's not okay. Because when you do an exchange, you have to take all of the equity, all the cash that comes from the property that you sell, and you have to reinvest it into the property that you buy. Well, if you're loaning the buyer of your property $7 million of your money, you're not taking all of your equity from the sale of property A and putting it into property B, which you're buying. Um, so we have some nice workarounds for that. We can help provide guidance to your clients that have seller financing issues. Um, we'll provide all of our contact information here at the end of the presentation, but we, but we have some, some good ways to help work clients around that complication. Uh, the last thing that I will leave you with before I turn it over to Suzanne is our 
shameless self-plug. Um, what a lot of people do not realize about the 1031 exchange industry is that it is completely unregulated. There is literally zero federal regulation of who can or cannot be your qualified intermediary. There's no licensing requirements. There's no bond or insurance requirements, uh, no continuing education requirements. So it's extremely important to know who you're working with on the 1031 exchange side of things. People call me up all the time and they say, hey, Steve, I'm, uh, it's between you and this other company. Tell me why you're better. I say, well, I think the customer service is great. And I think that I'm handsome enough to earn your business. But if that doesn't, <laughs> um, you know, the, the more important things are we are the largest qualified intermediary in the country. We are owned by the largest provider of title insurance services in the entire world. Our parent company is called Fidelity National Financial. We are a Fortune 500 publicly traded company. Um, our parent company also owns Fidelity Title, Chicago Title, Commonwealth Title, Lawyers Title, Tycor Title, and a whole slew of others. Um, when it comes to financial strength, security of funds, protecting your clients' money, um, we are literally second to none in the industry. Uh, and that's in part because Suzanne works very closely with the IRS um, to, to maintain compliance with what their regulations are. Uh, we also, because of our you know, our, our parent company is who they are. They only allow us to work with financial institutions that have very large financial backing. So we're not placing funds in, in tiny banks that are at risk of going under if there, there happens to be a recession. We all saw what happened back in 2008 and 9. In fact, I worked for Washington Mutual's exchange division back in 2008. That was a lot of fun when the FDIC came in and seized uh, WAMU on a, on a Thursday of all things, which doesn't ever happen. So you know, make sure you're asking lots of questions of who you're working with. We'd love the opportunity to work with you. Um, and so that's 1031 in a nutshell. I'm sure Suzanne will have lots of other things to add. She's going to talk to you a little bit more here about, you know, why 1031 is worth saving other than saving our jobs, which we think is important. Um, there's a lot of reasons why 1031 exchanges are important, not only to the real estate economy, but the economy as a whole. So Suzanne, take it away. Thanks, Steve. Okay, um, <clears throat> so I'm going to just go through things. Can, can you hear me all right? Am I coming through? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, so we're going to um, have a really brief history, so don't groan. It'll be really quick. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, why 1031s are being attacked, uh, what have the recent attacks been? What did it take for us to save 1031 the last time around? What are the current threats? Why are these threats wrong and wrong-headed? And um, what are we doing about it? What can we all do about it? <clears throat> so first with the history lesson. Happy birthday, 1031. Another two months, it'll be 100 years old. So yay! Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so back in 1921, Section 1031 was first written into the Internal Revenue Code. And the reason why it has survived for the last 100 years is because it's based on sound tax policies. So these two policies are continuity of investment, Taxpayer was invested in real estate. Taxpayers still invested in real estate. The address might have changed, but the nature of that real estate hasn't changed. It's a, it's a like-kind asset, and there's been no profit-taking. <clears throat> 
So, so that eliminates the fundamental unfairness of taxing a paper gain when there's been no cashing out. And it also eliminates the, uh, the abuse uh, on the other side of taking a loss that's a paper loss that you haven't really realized yet. So that's one. Two is to promote transactional activity. Promotion of transactional activity is promotion of economic activity. And it has lots of good things that come from it, um, including getting, you know, getting properties into the right hands so that for the, for example, with real estate, so that these assets get to their highest and best use. Um, originally, uh, back a hundred years ago, the contemplation was it was a pure swap. I want yours, you want mine, that's it, we're done. It's just two of you. I think of kids trading baseball cards. Uh, the simplest example for, you know, for our time would be like a trade-in. You, you trade in your work vehicle for a new work vehicle. Uh, the dealer takes your old rust bucket for the used car lot or the used truck lot and sells you the shiny new one. Now, since 2017, you can't exchange vehicles anymore, but up until then you could. And, and so if you think about a trade-in or you think about, they talk about how this started with farmers and I've done a lot of legislative research. I'm not so sure about that, but certainly the concept makes sense is, is that, you know, the farmer trades the, the acreage on one side to his neighboring farmer in return for other acreage that suits him better. And, and so, again, it's a two-party swap. Well, commercial real estate doesn't work that way, certainly not 100 years later. And 70 years later, Treasury figured it out that it's highly unlikely that the buyer is going to have anything, the buyer of your asset is going to have anything acceptable to trade back to you. It is far more likely that that buyer wants your property, but you need to go out and search the marketplace and acquire your replacement property from some third party seller who's got what you want. So in 1991, Treasury regulations were issued that set out a framework for delayed exchanges. So it didn't have to be two-party anymore, and it didn't have to be simultaneous where we sit together and we're swapping deeds. I can sell to you on day one, and as Steve said, I have up to day 180 to actually acquire from the third-party seller. So this set out the qualified intermediary safe harbor that, that put the guardrails around doing an exchange that was more than two-party and wasn't simultaneous. And it set forth for these rules. Uh, nine years later, in 2000, uh, revenue procedure was issued that set out rules sanctioning reverse and improvement exchanges. Uh, this set out the safe harbor for the exchange accommodation title holder, and it set forth a framework for parking a property. If you have to buy before you can sell, because that replacement property is on the market today, it's not going to wait for you to sell your relinquished property. You do that in a reverse exchange, and it's all the same rules, just in reverse. 
So that's been a great thing. Four years later, 2004, was the framework for Delaware Statutory Trust. Steve's talked about those DSTs. The really important thing here is that if the DST is set up in a way that's required by this revenue procedure, then a beneficial interest in a DST is treated as, as a direct ownership of the underlying real estate, which means in English that you can exchange into it or out of it. You can exchange a fee interest in, in real estate, improved real estate for your DST interest out of a DST interest back into dirt. Okay, Suzanne, move to the next slide. <laughs> okay, so uh, why these attacks on 1031? Um, mostly because they're based on myths. Uh, you know, the most prevalent myths are that it's, um, you know, an, a, an abusive loophole, it's a tax avoidant, it, it, it's an abusive tax shelter for avoiding taxes by the super rich and large corporations, or that it's preferential treatment for real estate that others don't get. And really, 1031 is none of these things. It is in fact one of the most fair tax tools available and it is used by a broad spectrum of taxpayers ranging from middle-class individuals, um, like Steve mentioned, investing in you know, duplexes and, and small rental properties, all the way up to small businesses, mid-sized businesses, and, and high net worth taxpayers, and, and large uh, institutional holders like REITs and life insurance. Um, and, and ultimately, everybody benefits. And the most important thing is that it's not a tax savings or a tax avoidance vehicle. Tax deferred, they are not eliminated. So the second reason why it gets attacked is because it's, a, it's thought of as a pay-for. So a pay-for is just some revenue item that can pay for something else. So every administration has legislative agendas. 1031 has a tax score to it. The Joint Committee on Taxation are the numbers crunchers for Congress. They actually figure out a cost of every single tax section. So, you know, if you think your job sucks, at least you're not doing that. <laughs> um, and so once you're on a list as a pay for, you might get off that list, but once you're on that list, you're always on the shelf. Even if you're off the list, you're on the shelf. So the next time somebody needs a revenue raiser, they need a pay for to pay for some new piece of legislation, something that the government wants to do, they go, they reach on the shelf. Oh, what's here? Here's this 1031. I don't know what this is. Most people don't know what this is. This is a good one because nobody will notice. So the bad news here is these threats to eliminate or to limit Section 1031, they're real and they're chronic. You, you know, just they, they just keep coming back like a whack-a-mole game. And the threats are bipartisan. So it's not about who you vote for because they're coming from all directions. They come from all camps. 
The good news is that even though the threats are bipartisan, so is the support. Support, we have congressmen on both sides of the aisle who are 1031 champions, who understand 1031, and they're very supportive of it, but they need to be educated. We have found over the years that by and large, congresspersons are willing to listen. And once we educate them about how beneficial 1031 is to really all classes of taxpayers and how important it is not only to the country, but particularly to their district or their state, they support 1031. So, you know, all of that is, is good. So, recent attacks, another little quick history lesson. And again, I'm showing you here, what I want you to notice is there Republicans and Democrats coming from both directions. So it's not about whose team you're on, it's about fighting the fight. So back in 2014, House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Dave Camp, a Republican, issued a discussion draft on comprehensive tax reform, which would have repealed Section 1031. Later the same year, Senator Ron Wyden, a Democrat who was the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, issued his discussion draft on a mass asset depreciation pooling proposal, which I am not going into. Um, it, it, but it, and while it wouldn't have, it didn't come out and say kill 1031, it would have made 1031 irrelevant. Um, 2015 year later, President Obama, Democratic president, has a budget proposal that would limit 1031 exchanges to a million dollars per taxpayer per year, limit the deferral amount. Now this would probably be fine for the smallest of the taxpayers doing these, and there are plenty of taxpayers whose, whose exchanges are, you know, $500,000, um, and sometimes less, 300000 So. So that wouldn't be unusual, um, but for anybody doing commercial real estate or exchanging even farmland, um, the likelihood is those gains would be well over a million dollars. So if the limitation was a million dollars per taxpayer per year, that would make it unavailable for, um, for really all of commercial real estate and most of agriculture. So that didn't go anywhere. 2016, Kevin Brady, this was the fight. This was the really hard fight. Uh, Republican chairman of House Ways and Means Committee. He published the Blueprint for Tax Reform, which was the prelude to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that ultimately got passed the end of 2017. But he put in there, he promoted immediate expensing of all assets including buildings, real estate structures. And he said many times, if you have immediate expensing, nobody needs 1031. Now the problem with expensing, which did go through for personal property assets like machinery and equipment and vehicles and you know trucks and things like that, um, is that with expensing, you'd be writing off a building in, in year one it would really destabilize, not only would it have destabilized the market, it certainly would have made 1031 irrelevant, but the real problem is, you know, right now you're gonna depreciate that real estate over 27 and a half years or over 39 years. 
So you sell their real estate after five, six, seven years. You have some depreciation recapture. Steve talked about that, the 25% hit for depreciation recapture. But can you imagine if you sold your building after five, six, seven years and you had a had a zero basis pretty much? Your basis would be only the value of the land because you would have fully depreciated everything. <coughs> You'd have an enormous tax bill. So we were able to save 1031 and get passed uh, for, for real estate and avoid the impact of immediate expensing. Um, 1031, uh, 1031 was eliminated for all personal property assets in the TCJA in 2017, but it was saved for real property. So when we used to be able to do exchanges for artwork, collectibles, uh, furnitures, fixtures, and equipment, something if you're selling, if they, you were doing an exchange of a hotel property, for example, you'd have a lot of that. Aircraft, uh, heavy equipment, automobiles, trucks, rail cars, barges, buses, ships. We did a lot of that stuff, along with intangibles like franchise licenses for fast food restaurant properties and hotel properties. <coughs> and all of that went away in the TCJA. But thankfully, real estate's still here. So here's what it took and how are we doing on time? We're okay. Um, so to keep 1031 for real estate, it took a ton, a ton of work. Um, we had hundreds of meetings with the tax writing committees, House Ways and Means, Senate Finance. We met with the Joint Committee on Taxation, those great numbers crunchers. Uh, we met with anybody and everybody in Congress who talked to us, um, you know, just tons of meetings. We formed a coalition with our industry association, the FEA, along with other real estate industries, the Real Estate Roundtable, National Association of Realtors, National Multifamily Housing Council, Farm Bureau, lots of other associations that some of you listening may well belong to, and we just really pounded the pavement on Capitol Hill and in those congressional office buildings. Um, we underwrote, the coalition underwrote a couple of studies that were groundbreaking by uh, Ernst and Young and Ling, uh, Professors Ling and Petrova, who wrote these um, economic impact studies. Uh, Ernst and Young was a macroeconomic Ling and Petrova, a microeconomic impact study focused on commercial real estate. And what they both did, and they dovetailed really nicely, is they quantified for the first time what would happen if 1031 was eliminated. And they quantified that based on all of this, you know, academic and, and, and unquestionable data, and metrics and stuff, they were able to determine that 1031 is such a powerful stimulant in the U.S. economy that U.S. GDP would actually contract long-term, year after year, if 1031 was eliminated. So that was a, those were really powerful studies and really powerful tools in terms of fighting this fight. Both of these studies are, are in process for being updated as we speak. 
um, National Association had published a, a nice uh, little booklet, a nice a report of theirs about like-kind exchanges on their real estate market perspective. And after having polled their members, and that's also being uh, updated, we did interviews, op-eds, editorials, um, letters to the editor. There were thousands of, grass, of, thousands of grassroots letters uh, sent to members of Congress. We have a facility on our website, the IPX 1031 website, also on the FEA website. There are um, canned letters that are out there. And, and so we did have a grassroots uh, campaign for that to make it just super easy. So, so we, you know, we live to die another day, so we're all real happy about that. Um, what are we doing now? Well, we're continuing the Capitol Hill visits um, since the pandemic, or prior to the pandemic. We, last year, we had over 200 uh, visits with congressional offices in, uh, on Capitol Hill, as well as uh, in the congressional district. Um, since then, we've been doing meetings and fundraisers with um, key Congress member, key members of Congress uh, through via Zoom, and they're working out really well. Um, we basically continued our education and awareness campaign to make them aware of the benefits of 1031. Um, we are also active in, in all aspects of 1031. You know, not just uh, tax reform. So uh, I was a, one of the principal authors of a letter to uh, Treasury back in April uh, asking for some clarification on the COVID-19 disaster relief and asking for some additional uh, relief. And that letter was signed by 19 real estate associations. Um, uh, we, I also co-wrote a, a letter to um, Treasury regarding some proposed regulations regarding uh, the, the definition, clarifying the definition of real estate, of real property for 1031. Um, we're very active with leadership roles in the FEA and also the real estate roundtable and our, you know, our, uh, our employees are involved in other associations as well. And, so, you know, we do play nicely with others because this is definitely um, a marathon, not a sprint, and it's not a, a one-person Superman, Superwoman job. It really does take a village. So uh, current threats. Um, immediate expensing is still out there. Um, we still don't like it, but it's still out there. And this is a concept that's still being promoted by some of the economists in uh, the Trump administration again, would make 1031 relevant, and the real estate market still opposes it because of its destabilizing factor. Uh, Senator Ron Wyden, who is now the ranking member of Senate Finance, still out there, uh, he's got a concept this year called Mark to Market, which would require gains to be recognized annually, even if the asset hasn't been sold. Um, again, still in the conceptual stage. Um, and then, of course, uh, President-elect Biden's campaign has proposed um, using 1031 as a pay-for uh, as part of their 
uh, to pay for some of their legislative initiatives. So what the, what the campaign platform calls for is elimination of loopholes <clears throat> and preferential tax and, and special tax preferences for real estate. Doesn't specifically say eliminate like kind of exchanges, but talking to their advisors, the advisors have said, yes, eliminating like kind of exchanges is part of that. And so it's only in writing in the newspaper, it's not in writing in a campaign platform or any kind of a bill, which is actually a, a good thing. Um, because once it's in writing officially, it, it's a much heavier lift. As long as it's still something talked about, well, we know how to deal with that. We educate, we make them aware. So <clears throat> why is it that these threats are wrong? And what is it that they need to learn to understand that their threats are wrong? Well, they need to learn about how 1031 stimulates the economy. It's an engine. It stimulates business growth of all sizes from middle-class investors, single-family rentals, apartment buildings, farmers and ranchers with agricultural properties, and businesses of every size. Stimulates capital investment. Some of these studies have shown that 1031 buyers invest significantly more capital into their replacement property than do non-1031 buyers. Um, simple thought about that is if you want to get a full deferral, you have to put 100%, you have to reinvest 100%, which means you have better equity, you've got greater equity, and, and you've got more borrowing power, which means you can go up. You don't have to go even, you can go up because you're better positioned. Um, stimulates, uh, 1031 stimulates transactional and economic activity. Really, really important that transactional activity encourages and facilitates the highest and best use of real estate. Think about that this way. Owners maintain, buyers renovate, they rejuvenate. This improved 1030, the increased transactional activity, putting properties in the hands of buyers who want to maximize their investment, improves communities, it improves the local tax base. The transaction itself creates jobs and taxable revenue. For a simple exchange of one sale, one buy, it's at least 30, tech, 30 jobs and, uh, and taxable revenue generated for professionals um, per exchange. So think of the people that are involved in, in just the simplest of real estate transactions. And then when you have an exchange, you double that. So I've listed some of them here. You've got qualified intermediaries, real estate brokers, escrow companies, title insurers, surveyors, appraisers, lenders, attorneys, contractors, building material suppliers, tradespeople, financial advisors. The list goes on. And of course, the larger the property, if you're talking about uh, commercial real estate or a build to suit property, then, you know, you're just talking more and more and more jobs. So think of the 1031 exchange as a catalyst for this entire ancillary stream of economic activity. If you take away, take away the transaction because you've taken away the exchange and now the seller doesn't want to sell because they're locked in by taxes, 
you've just wiped out all that economic activity. So eliminating 1031 would, would certainly hurt cash-strapped businesses and retirees because this allows them to maintain uh, the value of their investments without erosion for taxes and allows them to make good business decisions instead of good tax decisions. Um, 1031 benefits the environment and promotes conservation goals and creates green recreational green spaces for all of us through uh, conservation conveyances and, and conservation easements. Because, for example, agricultural owners are often um, cash rich, I'm sorry, <laughs> dirt rich, cash poor. They don't need a big uh, donation to write off a taxable, a, a charitable deduction. What they need is cash for that acreage that they're going to give up, that environmentally sensitive acreage. They get, they can sell that to the Nature Conservancy or the NRDC or any one of these conservation areas, the Department of Natural Resources in their state. They can sell it, they can take those funds and, and use those funds to invest in less sensitive, more productive acreage that they can, you know, get planting or use in their ranching business. And the economics of that kind of transaction simply do not work without 1031. Um, ultimately, the, you know, the final bullet once again is that if 1031 was eliminated, that you US GDP would contract. So what can everybody do about this to, to maintain 1031 is the tool that's so important to us and our clients. Education and awareness are absolute keys to our survival. Familiarize yourself with the broad benefits of 1031 exchanges. They have a whole laundry list on the last slide. You know, think about those. Um, if you have an opportunity to reach out to members of Congress because they're, you know, they're having some event and you're there. Or send them a letter. You know, that's real simple. You can go on any congressperson's website and they'll have a contact me and you can send them a letter. Or, you know, you can check our website from time to time or the 1031taxreform.com website for the FEA. There'll be canned letters out there. But you know, and other opinion leaders, you read some article in the newspaper that you know is really wrong, usually the author's uh, email address is there. Fire off an email, educate them, provide them with factual information and create, help create awareness by giving them real examples of the positive impact of like-kind exchanges on their constituents and in, in the communities that are within their districts, within their states. Point out, well, you know this new YMCA building, well, that happened because this guy exchanged that property for this and, and now we've got something good for our community. And, and let them know, or if it's yourself, let them know how it's benefited you, benefited your business and how your business has been able to grow because those are the things that truly resonate. And, and that's really what it's all about. It's about explaining this not well understood section of why it's important and, and why it helps real people. 
And with that, I'm going to give this back to Steve to just talk a little bit about our website. And then if there's time, we'll take questions. Yeah, I mean, on, on our website, all sorts of different tutorials. You can find a plethora of information. You can open up a 1031 exchange online through our website. We've got videos and, and all sorts of different contact information for, you know, our various employees throughout the nation. So whether you're you're here in Southern California or you're in Texas or wherever, you know you can you can find one of your local representatives through our website. We'd love the opportunity to work with you. Um, you know Suzanne and I are are here to to help support. If you're looking for more ways to get involved, um, we can give you some of those offline as well. Um, but uh, you know our website is is, is second to none. Um, in fact, you can even go on there and and send letters to your local congressman uh, so you know all sorts of different options that, that you can you can utilize through our website so you know, just let us know how we can be of service to you we'd love the opportunity to earn your business or work with you on your transactions and uh, you know, i think all of our contact information or at least mine is on the the last slide here um, and then i think we'll we'll turn it back over to, to kenny and crystal or help answer any additional questions that may may arise yeah, we do have a couple of questions. And then um, Kenny and I also had some questions that we wanted to follow up on. Um, so, um, oh, you did answer the pitfalls of DST already, um, like the lack of uh, flexibility and not being able to sell when you want and all that. That was one of the questions. Um, the, do you have anything else to say on that? And otherwise we can go on to the next question. I mean, there are definitely pros and cons to DSTs. I mean, the other thing that I would that I would weigh in and say is, you know, make sure you know who you're working with on the DST side of things. Uh, there are a lot of DST sponsors out there. Some of them are phenomenal. Some of them have never gone full cycle on a deal. And what I mean by full cycle is they've never bought a property, got a bunch of DST people into that property, a bunch of exchangers into that property, and then sold. So. Yeah, make sure you're doing your due diligence on who you're investing with on the DST side of things. There, like I said, there's some phenomenal companies out there. Most of them are, are great, um, but you know, do your due diligence just like you would on any other real estate transaction. Yeah, that's a that's good advice. Uh, we've definitely seen both sides of that, but I've seen it work really well, and I've seen it not work so well. Um, okay, the next question is: How does the low rate of interest help or hurt the 1031 market? Is that like low interest rates? I think it's low interest rates help yeah. or hurt. I would say it probably, in my opinion, it'd probably help because I mean, I know now because of COVID, but I think uh, when you come out of this low interest rates mean more, more deals, more transactions, you know, that's just my opinion. I feel like guys, we're already seeing in the residential market. I yeah. think people are buying. Right. Like crazy. <laughs> yeah. I would agree with that. I mean, you know, if right now inventory is super low so i mean it is tough for people to go out and buy um but because the interest rate and, and, and values are, are high so a lot of our clients do they kind of gripe they say hey look i'm selling high but i'm also buying high you are buying high but if you are putting debt on that property borrowing money has never been cheaper um <laughs> so you know assuming you can find something to, to pin down and assuming you do buy something it is a great time to finance real estate so uh, you know, I would say for the most part, I agree with you guys that it's that it's you know, interest rates being low helps stimulate real estate activity and, and 1031 exchange activity. Suzanne, do you have any thoughts? No, I agree with you. Nothing else. Yeah, I think a couple of things too to point out on your slide I wanted to just address. Um, I think the capital gain, uh, that tax rate could go up. 
So I think uh, exchanges are going to probably go up if, if um, you know, if it does go up to 30%, whatever they're talking about, another 10%, I think you're going to see a lot more exchanges. And so I think a lot of people are going to be shy away from just selling and, you know, taking another 10%, especially here in California, it's going to get crazy. So I think you'll see business grow up from that. The other thing that caught me on your, um, I want to address too, is I didn't really realize that, that 1031 is like not regulated. And so if you're with a, yeah, so if you're with an accommodator that's small and you're doing a big exchange and you put the money in with them and like you said, something does happen, um, there could be a problem there. And I kind of was like going to ask you more about that. So basically what you're saying is, is, you know, you're putting your money, your risk, everything in with somebody. And it's like, if it goes bust, they're not backed by a big company, something like you guys, there could be a major problem there. Correct. I mean, I've, I've got a, probably shouldn't tell this story, but I'm going to, I've got a local competitor in town. Um, some people really like using that company. Um, I've had a couple of people call me and say, you know, what's the difference between you two? And, and I kind of, you know, off, you know, offhand one time just said, well, the difference is if I get run over by a bus tomorrow, there's a hundred more employees that will take over for Steve Decker and, you know, yeah, I'll be in the ground, but you know, Suzanne will take over my deal or, you know, there's a hundred other IPX employees that can step in and, you know, uh, and, and take over. Whereas if he gets run over by a bus, <laughs> I have no idea what, what happens to your, to your exchange funds. I mean, it, it is, you know, and, and when you look back to 2008, I mean, I, I got into the industry in 2003 or 2004 when the market was going like this. And then we got to 2008 and right off a cliff, 2008, 9, 10, there were exchange accommodators that were going out of business. Um, you know, we've got some, some interesting industry nightmares that we could, we could kind of go over with you there. I mean, there was a exchange company out in Henderson, Nevada that had over a hundred million dollars of clients money and they were investing their clients money in a, in a French breast implant company, you know, a side business. Um, there's no regulation of what you can do with, with clients exchange proceeds. So, um, yeah, pretty, pretty scary. So when people do ask me, Hey, why do you cost a hundred bucks more than the other guy? I say, well, let me, let me send you a copy of our bond, our insurance. Let me show you who we got. You know, we got Suzanne Baker on staff. She costs a, a few bucks to, to keep on board, you know, but your money, you, you might pay us a hundred dollars more, but we guarantee your money is going to be there when you need it. Whereas uh, you know, there, there were some instances where hey, there were some people that flat out ran off with clients money. There was, there was one, uh, there's a TV show called American Greed. I don't know if you guys oh, yeah. have seen that. So, and he watches yeah, that all the time. <laughs> okay, so th there's an episode that they rerun probably about once a quarter. And it was about an exchange accommodator based in Virginia that, you know, took off of the $120 million of clients money. He was, you know, padding his lifestyle and buying yachts offshore. And every time they re-air that episode, without a doubt, the next morning I get three or four panicked phone calls from <laughs> hey, what, what are you doing with my money? <laughs> Oh, well, I'm in Las Vegas right now. You want red or black? Yeah. Uh, no, we, you know, so. I'd like to add to, to, to what Steve has said. Actually, the state of California does have a qualified intermediary um, regulation law. Um, we are not regulated at the federal level at all. Um, and the states, uh, for example, California does not require us to be licensed or registered or anything like that. But in the wake of these defalcations that Steve has talked about, 
they did enact a law and we at the FEA were very instrumental in helping to draft that law so that it would be something that worked for everybody. But it did set up some guardrails and it does require certain things. So it does, for example, require um, uh, a fidelity bond and, and things like that. But that being said, you, you know, you've got a couple thresholds. It, uh, is it, when you're checking for a QI, you want to make sure that they are in compliance because they may or may not be. And in addition, you, you, you know, we have such strengths, as Steve has mentioned, is that if a $1 million fidelity bond is required, we have a $100 million fidelity bond that we provide. And because we're part of a publicly traded company, we have regular audits and audit controls that you expect from large publicly traded companies that small businesses, you know, may or may not have those and because nobody's making them and, and they may not, you know, even have that kind of knowledge. So, um, so that's where a lot of that safety comes in. And all, every one of the accounts that we have for our clients, they're all segregated accounts. We do not have a big pool where it's all there. We're not investing in breast implant companies. <laughs> you, you know, it's in the bank and it's in a segregated account in the name of the, you know, in the name of the Q, of IPX 1031 SQI for the benefit of, you know, Kenny and Crystal exchange number one, two, three, four, five, and it's got your taxpayer ID number tagged to that account. So God and everybody knows it is not our money. We are controlling it because that's what's required to comply with the tax rules for 1031. But we don't own it. You know, equitably, it's not ours. Equitably, it's yours. And one other thing I want to touch on that, that Suzanne mentioned, there, there are a few states around the country that do have some level of state regulation, um, Nevada being one of them. Nevada requires that all clients' proceeds be held in a qualified trust account, which we are in compliance with, um, and we follow that state law. Uh, but I know for a fact that there are some QIs out there that are not compliant with that because you know, there, there's a, there are laws in place, but no enforcement agency in a lot of these cases. So you know we can have a law, but if there's no police officers enforcing the law, you know, what good is the law? Um, so, you know, just do your due diligence. Just like I said, with the DST companies, uh, you know, vet us, vet us as your qualified intermediary. Uh, I would put our financials up against anybody in the business. Yep. And you guys do about 20,000 exchanges a year, give or take. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was close to 25,000 last year, actually. Um, Okay. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty impressive how much business is, is transacting right now. I mean, I've, like I mentioned, I've been in the business for 17 years, October of this year, literally last month was the busiest month I've ever had um, wow. by, by quite a bit. Wow. So there's a lot of exchange, wow. a lot of properties changing hands right now. So a couple questions that I wanted to ask, uh, these are kind of like regular things that come up during a 1031 exchange. So uh, especially in the beginning of COVID when a lot of lenders, uh, at least a lot of our commercial lenders were requiring a 
reserve for mortgage payments. Sometimes it was PI, sometimes it was PITI, anywhere from six to 12 months. So um, they would hold that back and be on the closing statement as a reserve. Is that something that can count toward your 1031 exchange? Suzanne, do you want to weigh in on that? That's <laughs> <laughs> um, the sort of thing, um, it, it, you know, off the top of my head, it sounds to me like it would be, um, you know, in general, loan fees are not, um, they're not considered to be allowable exchange, ex expenses of the exchange. Um, so, well, you know, we try to not, you know, answer questions that are very specific to a closing statement. Sure. Because sometimes there's a difference in vocabulary. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and so, like so many things, this is, things can work, can be correct in one concept and not correct in another. Um, very simple. On Steve's first uh, slide, he mentioned the last thing he mentioned was uh, the ghoulish wonder, which would be investing in cemetery plots. So if you want to buy cemetery plots for, you know, you and the wife, that's not going to work. That's personal use. If you want to go buy a block of cemetery plots because you believe that's a good investment and then ultimately you're going to be selling those at a profit down the road, yes, that's a perfectly fine uh, exchange asset. But again, without that nuance, without that context, you could easily give a wrong answer. So, yeah, so for the question, I would say, um, you know, talk to the CPA. Okay. Yeah, okay. That seems to be my, my go-to answer. Ask your CPA. <laughs> um, okay, uh, is there a minimum time required to hold a property to be able to do a 1031 exchange? Like if you bought it, you know, we hear this rule, you buy it, you're going to maybe, you know, you rehab it, value add it, and you're ready to move on. Is there, you know, I don't know if you guys hadn't hear anything. We're just kind of wondering about that. So I think you got kind of two different questions there. I'll take the, the second one first. Um, if you're, it sounded like you, you kind of outlined a flip. Uh, generally flips are, are not going to qualify for exchanges because the, the gain that you make from a flip is considered ordinary income. Um, so even if that flip takes more than a year to complete, if you are buying the property to hold it primarily for sale, um, it, it generally is not in the, the spirit of a 1031 exchange and it would therefore not be eligible. I have had some CPAs that have said, hey, look, if you're not doing this in the ordinary course of your business, like if you're a dentist and you did this as a one-off, you know, you might be able to, to get away with it. But, you know, it's not something that we would typically advise our clients to do. Um, but as far as what the hold period is, there's actually nothing hard and fast in the tax code that says how long you have to hold a property before you can sell it as a part of an exchange. What the IRS is looking for is what your intent was at the time that you purchased the property. Um, now, a lot of CPAs that I talk to, they want you to hold the property for a year and a day. The reason why a year and a day is because typically your number one goal in doing a 1031 is to defer long-term capital gains tax and you only begin to accrue long-term gain until you've held it for that you know, over a year. Um, but I've had some clients that have sold in less than a year and completed successful exchanges. I, I did one that particularly stands out. I had a client, um, this was a few years back. I was doing a seminar up in Las Vegas. Um, I, I'm sitting in, you know, I'm standing in front of this group of real estate professionals. Everybody's dressed in like either polos or suits, but in the front row, there's this one guy that's wearing a 
Slayer t-shirt and he's got a ZZ top style beard down, you know, to his, to his gut and he's wearing cargo shorts. And I'm thinking, okay, well, this guy doesn't really belong here. This guy stands out a little bit. After my presentation, he comes up and he talks to me and he says, you know, Hey Steve, I'm here with my broker. Um, I am a music producer for bands like Slayer and I bought a music studio out of foreclosure in January of this year. I paid two and a half million dollars for it. I knew the previous owner of that property. I knew how much he sunk into the property and, you know, wiring and sound equipment and all that. Um, it's now, you know, at this point, it's, it's probably April, you know, it's three or four months later. He says, a guy came to me and offered me $5 million to go away, to sell the property to him. And, you know, he said, can I do a 1031 exchange? I said, well, you know, you've, I said, the question that I asked him, I said, when did you hire your, your broker that's sitting here with you? Did you hire him after you received this offer or did you hire him and, you know, kind of wink, wink, he found a buyer for you. He said, nope, I, you know, I received this offer. I hired him. You know, I have an email that shows I hired him two days later. I mean, I said, look, get the blessing from your CPA or tax advisor, but I think you've got a case there where you received an offer that you couldn't refuse. You didn't, you didn't solicit a buyer for that property. Some to you, somebody came to you and offered you a hundred percent you know, uh, return on investment in three or four months, you'd be foolish to turn it down. He went forward, did the exchange. It's now a few years later. He hasn't called me back and said, Hey, I got audited and had the thing blown up. So it's really based on what your intent was. Right. Okay. Speaking, speaking of audits, um, <laughs> is there, you know, we always say, is there anything that's a red flag, you know, doing exchanges that it's like, you're just going to ask for an audit. I don't know. Just throwing it oh, out there. Trigger it. Yeah. Trigger it. Don't buy from a related party. Um, okay. So, you know, that, that's, a, that's a big no-no. The IRS is worried about basis shifting. So, you know, don't buy from your parents. Don't buy from your siblings. Don't buy from your kids. That's a huge red flag. Um, here in California in particular, we run across a lot of partnership issues. Um, you know, the, three, the four of us on this, on this Zoom webinar went out and we bought a property 10 years ago. We put it in ABC partnership. Uh, we're now selling the building and we all want to go our separate directions. We don't like each other anymore. You know, Suzanne wants to cash out and pay her taxes. Kenny and Crystal, you want to go buy a property in Texas and I want to go buy something in New York. Um, you know, a lot of times in the past, what people were doing was dropping out of their partnership right before they closed the property and putting the property into tents in common and then scattering, particularly here in California. That's what's referred to as a drop and swap. That can definitely put you on the radar of the California Franchise Tax Board. Uh, there's now a box on the federal partnership tax return on the 1065 that asks if you distributed a tenant in common interest in the real estate uh, within the last year. If you check that box, yes, you're, you're kind of putting yourself in the crosshairs of a potential audit. So those are two in particular that stand out. Suzanne, do you have anything else that, that you can think of that would, that would be a big, you know, audit risk? Um. You know, don't, things that are just real simple. Don't be stupid. You know, Steve laid out it, everything absolutely correctly. And, and some of these state um, departments of revenue, like, you know, the California Franchise Tax Board, um, New York as well, you know, they look, they're looking for money. 
And so I know the FTB, you know, they've got a whole department of folks that go out and, and they will audit. Um, they audit QIs, we were audited. And, uh, and, and it was a huge audit. Um, so, you know, so they are looking and, and sometimes, you know, you hear about people and they do things that, you know, you want to say, okay, what about the smell test? What about the giggle test? You, you know, how ridiculous are you going to look sitting in a witness stand trying to explain this and trying to justify your actions? Um, you know, the key is you need to have, you know, there are definite rules that need to be followed. Um, so don't violate those rules. And you have to have a bona fide intent to actually do the exchange. Um, and lots of times, whether you have an intent or not is pretty obvious from how things lay out. Um, you can't backdate documents backdating documents like a 45 day ID. Well, you don't get 50 days by backdating it. You, you know, the 45 day is the 45 day. And, and if you backdate a document, that's fraud. And, and that's a felony. People go to jail for that. Um, I don't know about Decker, but I don't look good in orange. So <laughs> I'm going to help with that. And, and, and so it's, it's a lot of those things. And, and there's a, a tax fraud case years ago in California about backdating documents where a guy did go, um, you know, uh, did go to jail. He was prosecuted for tax fraud and, um, it was the broker that dropped the dime. Uh, he stiffed the broker. So don't be stupid and don't stiff anybody in your transactions. Yeah. And don't break the rules. You, you know, it's pretty easy to accomplish if you follow the rules. But if you don't follow the rules, expect bad things. Okay, we got another uh, question here from an attendee. Uh, so let's say that somebody owns like, for example, I have a client who owned a, like a hundred unit building and he went through a divorce and he, he was living in one of the apartments. So if he sells that building while he's living in it as a tenant, are you able to 1031 yeah. exchange? Yes. So 99 of the units would be eligible for an exchange. I mean, that's a simpler example would be you own a duplex, you live yeah. in unit a, you rent unit B, so half um, of it when you when you sell that property, yeah. Um, assuming generally a CPA, from what I found, CPAs break it down by the square footage. So assuming that unit A and unit B are the same square footage, fifty percent of the value of the property. If it's a one million dollar duplex, you could do a ten thirty one exchange with fifty percent of it, and you would take the primary residence exemption on the other the other portion. Assuming you've lived there two out of the last five years, um, you know one thing that is coming up as a result of COVID is people are using home offices a lot more than they used to. You can actually, in your primary residence, if you are now reporting that, you know, 20% of your primary residence is being used for business purposes, if you're taking a depreciation deduction um, and you're reporting that on your taxes as, you know, 20% of your primary is being used for business purposes, when you sell that property, if you have a large enough gain, you could actually do a 1031 exchange with the 20% that uh, 
that you that you were wow. using for, for your home office. So that's really interesting, and I would imagine too with ADUs becoming a big thing now um, in California and now especially San Diego that that's going to become more mm -hmm. of a thing too. Yeah, um, that you could 1031 exchange if you've got someone living in your sure. ADU. Yeah, that's how they back here. Very cool. That's interesting. That's a good take on it. Um, you know, I think honestly, guys, I think we covered a lot of stuff here. A lot of questions. Um, I would say if anybody has any more questions to contact, um, Steve, his, uh, you can see his information here. And then obviously this will be posed, you know, as our podcast and, um, Steve can answer any questions and you guys might come up with a lot more, but I think we honestly addressed so much stuff here today. I really appreciate it guys. Um, I know I learned a couple things. And then I think, you know, Suzanne, to back up your, you know, how do we support and how do we get involved? I like that is if you see an article, if you see somebody reporting some nonsense, you know, whether they're, you know, congressperson or a news, send an email, contact them and educate them or send them to somebody else like us that might know. And, you know, like you said, use your own example or something of how you benefit and how it's not, this is not just about the rich getting richer. Um, this is about jobs GDP opportunities and a lot more things. So, absolutely. Thank you, guys. We appreciate the opportunity awesome. to come on and speak with you today. So, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. Okay, guys. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.